spooky in it. Did it talk to you? A voice in the wires. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out and read over 4,000 of my written reviews. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can check out all of my written work at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link that goes to my other podcast. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. Very similar to this one, but it covers films not only from the 1990s, but also ones that are more recent that tie in with those films from the 90s, as well as films from the 80s that I cover here on this show. So check that out to the 90s and beyond. The link at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to get into the first of a three-part series looking at films from the 1980s in which something electrical or electricity is the antagonist kind of an intriguing premise there but it'll make more sense as we get into the films the first film i'm going to be covering in this trilogy is from 1988 and it is called pulse pulse is a pg-13 rated film it does have disturbing images violence and language the runtime is an hour and 31 minutes. Joey Lawrence is the main star, along with Cliff DeYoung and Roxanne Hart. Matthew Lawrence and Charles Tyner also appear in the film. The director and the screenwriter of Pulse is Paul Golding. If you haven't heard of Paul Golding before, don't necessarily blame you. This was his debut feature directorial effort, but also was his last. His only other directorial credit on IMDb was when he co-directed this three-minute short film back in 1966. That was called Herbie, and he co-directed it with none other than George Lucas, but it was back in their USC film school days. Golding broke into the business as an editorial consultant for the impactful 1969 film, Medium Cool, one of the best films, really, of the 1960s that he was the editor of, so... Pretty good talent there. Golding did grow up in Troy, New York. He had a love of science fiction. He had a boyhood dream, in fact, to become a theoretical physicist. He also had an artistically creative side to him. He crafted reels of audio comedy skits with his friends. And soon, his work with audio took on a video component when Golding obtained an 8mm film camera, and he started making experimental home movies. As the space race heated up between the United States and the Soviet Union, that was back in the late 1950s, the opportunities in his chosen field of theoretical engineering began to dissipate. But Golding did discover, with his new hobby, another avenue that might be open that he was equally eager to pursue. In 1963, Golding caught this screening at Cooper Union, a private college in Manhattan, of this rough-cut film by Ron Rice called The Queen of Sheba Meets the Atom Man. This film was shot with a 16mm camera around New York and various places, and Golding, when he watched this, he felt Rice's effort was closely resembling the kinds of short movies that he'd been making for years. And Golding suddenly had this new identity, an underground filmmaker. 
And not long afterward, Golding, he was reading a newspaper article about programs at USC and UCLA that taught filmmaking. So when he chose a college, Golding opted for USC. He wanted to pursue his newly chosen career. And it's there that he collaborated with the likes of big name directors like George Lucas, as well as John Milius and many others that were future stars in the filmmaking business. Now, after graduating and editing Medium Cool in 1969, Golding pursued several promising Hollywood projects. They never did find their way in front of cameras, though. His first commercially produced work did come, but it was on television. He had co-written the script called Littlefoot with David Irving, and that was about a boy who gets lost in the woods, and then he encounters a young version of Bigfoot. They took this idea to Disney. Disney seemed interested, but ultimately declined because they did not want to promote the Bigfoot myth. It seemed to be against their grain. So, thinking fast on his feet, Golding offered, what if they changed the character from a Bigfoot to be the last of a tribe of Indians? Disney liked that idea, so Golding set about doing revisions. The script's title changed from Littlefoot to The Secret of Lost Valley. Eventually, the screenplay was chopped into two parts. It was directed by actor Vic Morrow for the Disney-produced television show called The Wonderful World of Disney. And the first part was shown in late April and the second part in early May of 1980. Despite earning Golding a Writers Guild Award, he despised the changes that Disney made with his story. He vowed he was going to fight more for his vision on any future projects. During the frustrating period during the 1970s where Golding was having a hard time trying to come up with things that were going to get in front of cameras, he did come up with this idea. At various times, it would be titled something called House or Tract or Currents. Ultimately, he called it Pulse. During this time, Golding had recently divorced and he started living in this tract house in Eagle Rock, California, which exists between Glendale and Pasadena in Los Angeles County. And during this period, he was feeling pretty lonely. He occasionally did invite friends from his USC days to stay with him. One happened to be a cinematographer named Caleb Deschanel. In case you're wondering, Caleb is the father of actresses Zoe and Emily Deschanel. Golding's house had this water heating system. It had a boiler. It made loud noises that made Deschanel feel very uneasy something he was not quite accustomed to. He would stir in bed whenever the furnace would turn on and off, and the pipes would creak very loudly from the temperature changes. When Deschanel described the feeling of being in the house, he felt like it was alive. It was somehow sentient. It was, in some way, it was taking care of them. And that gave Golding this idea of the kind of a darker spin to that. He envisioned a film in which a, a haunted house could use its utilities to torment its inhabitants, that it didn't want there. A little bit later, Golding heard from this friend who was working in the computer industry. This friend's professional team designed a a device for a, a telephone company that detected communication errors within their phone lines, and then they would print out the results for their repair division to investigate. But over time, the number of errors reported began to wane. It's almost as if the errors began fixing themselves or this device reprogrammed itself to not find those errors. Eventually, they stopped that program, but this anecdote did foster within Golding this very eerie, kind of scary notion of this future where humans who are increasingly relying on technology 
might someday find that technology doesn't really want to cater to us humans anymore. Further continuing along these lines, Golding began musing about how reliant humans have really become on electricity to sustain us, and how frighteningly dangerous it would be for society should these utilities that we all count on to push progress forward, if it were to turn against us somehow. Golding adapted this premise to a much smaller scale, and it would involve a married couple living in a haunted house that eventually used the appliances against its human inhabitants. But as he continued to revise his script, he always hit this one creative wall. It continued to plague his story. The couple could always easily just leave. So he needed something more than a mortgage payment that would keep the couple stuck inside the house. So Golding's solution was this. He would write in a child, a child for this couple who really did not have anywhere to go. Better yet, a child who was visiting his divorced parent who was left alone and who was unfamiliar with how to shut down the security system that was protecting the house that would also be keeping him from escaping. Now, in the completed story, electricity lines between the houses in this suburban Los Angeles neighborhood allows an unseen but powerful malevolent force to enter the homes, and there it begins twisting the house's wiring, everything that is plugged into it to its particular liking. Eventually, it begins using the home's appliances, the television, the washing machine, the dryer, the heating system, the garage, to torture the inhabitants within. Now, in one home in this cul-de-sac, the father eventually went crazy and began destroying his home before ultimately meeting a tragic end. And now it seems to be threatening the house across the street where this 11-year-old boy named David is visiting his divorced father for the summer. And David seems to know that there's something weird going on, but he really can't leave the house until he convinces his skeptical father before they're stuck into what threatens to become a high-voltage death trap. Over the next few years, Golding estimates that he entered into deals surrounding this screenplay maybe about 10 times, including one for television. None of them really panned out. Now, with the release of Poltergeist in 1982, he no longer was easily able to sell this to studios anymore because the studios felt that there were too many similarities between Pulse and Poltergeist, and they didn't have much interest in being a copycat. Golding then shifted attention to other projects, including doing a screenplay for what would become the 1984 film Beat Street. Golding, during this time, he his confidence was further shaken when the original director and the co-writer for Beat Street, Andrew Davis, was fired from the project. But Davis's ability, sometime later, to do bigger and better things, eventually encouraged Golding to continue to pursue Pulse, even if the doors were closed in his face especially when his next project, Bad Dates, a screenplay collaboration he did with A Nightmare on Elm Street 2's director, Jack Shoulder, also did not pan out. Finding financing was difficult because Pulse did not offer easily understandable explanations as to what this entity is within the home and why it is haunting the house. The studio suits persistently asked Golding to include a moment in his story that explains everything to the audience. Golding pointed to 1982's Poltergeist being a great movie until you find out the nature of the hauntings. That seemed to really burst a balloon of tension once you discover it. And that's because humans fear the unknown, and the more you reveal about the monster in their minds, the less fearsome it becomes. 
1986, Golding eventually received some support from a friend, William McEwen. McEwen put Pulse into development with his Aspen Film Society and then coordinated with Columbia Pictures for its distribution. Columbia was in this period, in a time of upheaval. Its parent company, Coca-Cola, was selling off many film assets that it had, including Embassy Pictures, its home entertainment division, and also the Walter Reed organization. British film producer David Putnam had just been named the chairman and CEO of Columbia, and Putnam immediately shifted Columbia away from big star-studded packages in favor of doing smaller productions and more prestigious efforts. Columbia's president of production, David Picker, happened to be a producer on Beat Street, and he took a look at Golding's script, and he felt that Pulse was exactly the kind of film that Columbia should be making. So Putnam acquired it, and then Columbia put it into development with an initial budget of $6 million. Columbia allowed Golding to pick his line producer, and he chose Patricia Stallone. Stallone, she happened to joke to the press that Pulse is something that would appeal to people from all walks of life, who use electricity, really opening up the potential demographic to just about everybody, certainly anybody who watches movies. Now, for casting, Picker advised Golding, don't go for big stars. Being a first-time director, these stars were liable to cause more trouble than they were worth. So they auditioned several actors, including Tommy Lee Jones for The Father Bill. They passed on Jones, but the casting agents, they had previously worked for the TV show Saint Elsewhere, so they had brought in one of the actors from that show, David Morse. Morse blew them away with his audition, so they thought he was a lock, until they looked at the tape and they found that none of the power that he was projecting in person seemed to come through on the screen for reasons they defy really their explanation. But eventually, they continued looking and settled on Cliff DeYoung, with Roxanne Hart securing his new wife, Ellen. After an extensive casting call for David Rocklin, the 11-year-old in the film, they selected Joey Lawrence. Lawrence was working as a cast member for the TV show Give Me a Break, and he wowed them during the audition. Golding, despite this promising audition, did find it challenging to get Lawrence to stop his TV acting tendencies. Exaggerated mannerisms were pretty much par for the course on the small screen, but on the big screen, acting required a little bit more subtlety than what Lawrence was delivering because emotions could easily be read via facial expressions rather than body movements on the big screen. Now, when Lawrence kept gesticulating unnecessarily with his arms during his acting performance, Golding would have Lawrence sit on his hands to assure that he would act more with his face than with his body. And that's how they got through some of the more difficult scenes. Now, Jory Lawrence's brother, Matthew, who also had a recurring role on Give Me a Break, he also came to that audition, and he ended up landing the part of Stevie, the neighbor kid. Matthew wasn't somebody who could read scripts, but he easily memorized this long speech written for Stevie for that audition, and he nailed it. In fact, Golding had an easier time directing Matthew because of the malleability of his inexperience. Now, Golding here in Pulse uses the advancement in technology and the interconnectedness of all of us within our cityscapes as this metaphor for the internal circuits within the electronic devices that can go awry if they are left to those with evil intent. Just as the entity within Pulse can cause great destruction to the order of things through the abuse of advancements in human technology, so too can our society be more easily destroyed by those who could exploit those advancements for harm on a much larger scale. Scientific explanations within the film are left to us, the viewer's imagination, as we ponder whether the force is demonic 
or alien, or maybe an artificial intelligence in origin, brought about by changes in the grid after a lightning strike. Character actor Charles Tyner, he plays this kooky electrician surreptitiously studying this phenomena, who might not be as crazy as he seems to appear. His character gives insight into the phenomena by stating that paranoia is just another way of saying heightened awareness. His old man character reveals that the only power that we have to protect ourselves is by unplugging ourselves from the grid altogether. Now, David comes from a place where he's very apprehensive about being in a big city. He is nervous on the airplane. He's clutching his toy horse. He's from a rural area of Colorado, and now he happens to be living in the hustle and bustle of this very large city. David's father, Bill, he seems to obviously not have spent enough time while they were apart to get to know his son very well. He tries to impress David with this race car-themed room, which really doesn't represent who he is or his interests. David prefers the simple life of skateboarding and intertubing with a fishing pole. The editing of the film was done during the production, although Golding was an experienced editor prior to his work here. He did let the person that he hired for the job, Gib Jaffe, do the work. The original cut, when it was all said and done, ran two hours long. However, Golding felt that the film was dragging in that runtime, so that prompted immediate cuts to try to tighten the pacing down to maybe about a lean 95 minutes. It ended up being about 91. Some of the cutscenes were to the opening of the film where we see David in Colorado with his mother before he goes and heads to Los Angeles. Golding felt that the film should get more quickly into the action at hand. Another excise sequence involves David and Ellen in this conversation near some electric transmission lines. Ellen begins to relate the story from her childhood about how the tracked housing started cropping up in her neighborhood once these big power lines were put in. Although that scene added context, Golding felt that it did deflate the momentum of tension he was trying to build up. Golding wrapped Pulse on schedule and a million dollars under its six million dollar budget, but Golding was strongly cautioned by a colleague in the industry that the studio was going to be suspicious rather than impressed by this. He said, studios know exactly what each project should cost, and they feel cheated whenever the money that they invest is not fully used. So Golding had to spend the remainder, and he had this idea of using macro photography inserts to show the inside of the technology of the devices within the home, going haywire, close up for our eyes. Golding had originally contemplated working with traditional visual effects studios like his friend George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic when he was approached by Oxford Scientific Films. Oxford was renowned for their nature documentaries, and after he watched their demo reel, Golding was blown away. He hired them and he traveled to Oxfordshire to oversee photography on actual circuits and microcircuits in states of change. And they used all kinds of interesting things that were very rarely shown before in a major motion picture, which gives Pulse a unique visual edge over other films of its era. For a moment in which the inside circuits of a television appear to be realigning very eerily, the sequence was shot using the traditional macro photography process, and then it was played backward in the film to look even more unnatural. Once Golding was able to put together his cut with all of the macro photography within it, a test screening was set up for the Columbia execs, and it went very well. After the showing, David Picker, in fact, walked over to Golding and told him, feel his hands. They were covered with sweat from the tension he was feeling through the movie. Picker intended to release Pulse 
He was going to blow it up to a 70 millimeter print for New York and Los Angeles markets. And that would hopefully build momentum and buzz before it rolled out nationwide for Columbia's intended big summer release. However, Picker and Putnam were soon out the door at Columbia in 1987. And the incoming head of Columbia, Don Steele, and that new regime were not as enamored of the things that were put into production under the Putnam era. And so Steele ordered the release of whatever that they had ready to go into theaters between January and March of 1988, and that included Pulse. Eventually, a dispute erupted from the producers of Pulse. They claimed that Columbia Pictures had effectively dumped their film. And rather than giving it a national release, as was intended, Columbia gave Pulse a very small regional release in March of 1988 in only 125 theaters, specifically within the markets of Oklahoma and Texas. Golding, along with executive producer William McEwen, as well as producer Patricia Stallone, accused new president Don Steele of having a severe bias against the remaining releases that were put into the Columbia slate under outgoing president David Putnam. And the lawsuit was threatened, though it didn't really go much of anywhere. Now, Pulse did find a little bit of an audience when it was released on home video and on cable showings. People who are younger certainly remembered a lot more, but it has remained a very small contingent of people who have seen Pulse. You rarely hear it talked about among classics of the 1980s, if people talk about it at all. Pulse builds really good suspense, has a good mystery about what it's about, the visuals here are often very arresting, especially these close-up shots, the action capturing the electrical processes gone haywire within the household appliances. The photography beyond that by Peter Lyons Collister is also a major asset, perfectly accentuated by that macro photography provided by Oxford Scientific Films, getting us not only outside but inside the frying circuit boards and the, the melting solder. It's quite stunning, purely on a technical level, merging with that sound design, the electrical effects of those moments, providing really effective aesthetic creepiness and a hint of otherworldliness that is very welcome to this film. Now, in addition to its severely curtailed rollout, I think Pulse may have failed to resonate during its era of release back in the late 1980s, because by that point, the world had already fully embraced consumer electronics as something most people really wanted and something they considered to be really good to have in the home. Now, many families firmly were sold on the comfort of these electronics and of living in suburbia. The white picket fences, the lawn that's always green and well manicured, it was something that was considered very desirable during this period. The yuppie generation, they viewed a person's worth through their possessions and the appearance of one's clothes, one's car, their home, those are all the projections of success or failure in this rapidly changing and upwardly mobile society. So Golding's warning here about entrapment within a life of ease was going completely against the grain of the prevailing societal mindset of its time. With the internet, with cable TV taking hold, everybody was really excited to tune in and turn on and not to drop out and unplug, as the message of this movie suggests. You know, people during this time did not feel these things really walled them off from the outside world, even though the value of their possessions made them have to add bars on the windows or locks on every door. Meanwhile, the level of sophistication of these devices increased exponentially during the computer age. There are so many new circuits, new chips, all this modern technology within 
each device that even repair technicians who have done it for many years no longer know what's actually going on inside them. They just follow the manual on how to fix it and hope for the best. And if even skill technicians are not aware of how these devices work, that calls into question another fearful thought about whether anybody actually knows what these things are doing. Not only four people, but two people who might live in the vicinity. David's father, he smokes cigarettes. That's a nasty habit promoted purely by commercialism, this selling of status to its customers in exchange for their health. David's mother says people smoke because they don't like themselves. She also does not encourage the use of a microwave. She claims it's going to make you sterile, and that further fosters in David the suspicion of modern technology that he carries through this film. And yet here's a movie about how technology not only is desirable among society, but underneath it seems to be destroying families, neighborhoods, our sense of community, our connection with nature. We're walling ourselves off the more that we're connected and interconnected by these reliances on technology. In Golding's Pulse, our possessions are these things that will eventually possess us. David, he feels resentful about leaving his home to spend his summers cooped up with electronics and nobody actually to connect with. Bill and Ellen, they seem to rather want to impress people of higher status than spend time with David, who they let be entertained by their television while they go to a dinner schmoozing with so-called Madison Avenue types. David ends up watching baseball or other TV shows that are full of these commercials that constantly push more products as the means to a fulfilled life. And the boy is just still unhappy about this. He implores his father, please move to rustic Colorado. But Bill says it's out of the question. He can't give up the job that gives him such a comfortable life of leisure. Bill has fully bought into the consumerism after being bombarded by these commercials day after day, the game shows on television, the steady drumbeat telling him that shows of love for your wife or your child are in giving them nice things. That's much more valuable than providing emotional and physical closeness. Now, Pulse does have its flaws, the presentation of the acting can come off a bit stiff. This is, after all, Paul Golding's first crack at directing a film. Roxanne Hart, though, I do think gives a good performance despite the awkwardness of the presentation. She plays the stepmother who tries to be accepted and then slowly begins also realizing that there's more to what her stepson happens to be saying than a cry for negative attention. I think Pulse overall, though, is a vastly overlooked suburban gothic classic of its era, of the 1980s, that I think deserves to find a larger audience that could appreciate it. Golding himself says he thinks it's a pretty good film and modestly actually says he'd grade it a solid B+, but I think that there are a lot of people that would grade it at least a B. This is certainly, I think, a better film than the 5.4 or whatever it is rating on IMDb currently is. I think once you start peeling back the layers and actually give the film some thought, you find much more that meets the eye within the technological nightmare that is Pulse. I do think that there's a lot of good talent shown here by Golding. It's unfortunate that this would mark the end of his output in the capacity of a director, and he soon would leave Hollywood not long after this. So all in all, I'm going to give Pulse three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do think that this is a worthwhile film for people who like this kind of movie. And specifically, I think it's for people who like films of the 1980s 
who liked those films about suburbia and paranoia and kind of the darker side of suburbia, but also who are intrigued by films that dabble a little bit into science fiction as well as horror, but on a very mild PG-13 scale. Don't expect it to be a full-on genre film. This definitely does play much stronger as a family drama than it does into a particular genre film that some people mistakenly pigeonhole it into before watching and then come away thinking it wasn't great for that kind of movie that they were looking for. So three stars out of four is what I give the much overlooked pulse. I definitely do recommend checking it out. If you've never heard of it at the very least, at least give it a chance and you may come away thinking like I did when I first saw it. Why have I never heard of this film? Now, Golding did write a screenplay after making Pulse immediately. He continued to want to stay in the business. He called it a thematic sequel to Pulse, although it had a completely different story and different characters. The title was originally called Ames, A-A-M-E-S. Eventually, that changed to Macrochip over the years, but unfortunately, it never quite did get made. However, Golding mostly retired eventually from the business. It remains unproduced. By the way, if you like the work that Cliff DeYoung and Roxanne Hart do in this film, they also appeared once again as husband and wife in the year 2000 in this Hallmark Hall of Fame TV movie called The Runaway. So it has nothing to do with Pulse, but if you happen to like that pairing, I guess you could see them again in a more recent film than Pulse. Anyway, if you have your own thoughts about Pulse, if you have seen this movie, or if you haven't, but you actually did watch it in anticipation of this review, I do want to know what you think of this movie. If you like it, or maybe it did disappoint you in some form or fashion, you can let me know what you gave this film on a scale of one star to four stars by writing to me. My contact information can be found at my website. That's at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R dot net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there. Email is the best way to get in touch if you so desire. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, continuing on with the evil electricity. This time going to a writer and director that you have heard of, one of the masters of the horror genre of the 1980s. It was released just a year and a half or so after Pulse. I'm talking about Wes Craven's Shocker from 1989, and that will be the review I do on the next episode of this show. If you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a while, I do encourage you to check out Shocker. And until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Music